Morning, Bethel. Okay, so we began a new series last week through the book of 1 Corinthians, and we're going to take roughly one week per chapter with a couple of exceptions. Um, so if you missed last week, you can catch up online. Um, messages will be online. So the series title is Cruciform Living. Uh, what in the world does that mean? Well, cruciform is in the shape of the cross, right? Uh, so this book of 1 Corinthians is actually all about the centrality of the cross in the life of a Christian and in the life of a Christian community, a church community. We are all shaped by something, by someone or a combination of things, uh, and the world in which we live is constantly seeking to shape us shape our values and kind of press us into its mold. So for instance, the norms all around you, the air that you breathe all the time is you at the center and God at the periphery, if God at all. That's pretty normal in our culture. Or it's pretty normal to have the satisfaction of your selfish desires as the key to your joy. How am I going to be happy well, I've got to get what I want. And then the other message is God's a celestial killjoy. That's a pretty typical message. Again, if people believe in God at all. So what if you give way to that? What if you get squeezed into that mold? Well, you can imagine all the implications of doing so. So Romans 12, 2, Paul writes, he says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. So what is the powerful, radical thing that can transform us? Where's the power to change? It's the gospel of the cross of Jesus. That's the radical power that changes us. So in chapter one, we saw how the cross is the weakness of God, quote unquote, that is more powerful than any human strength. The cross is the foolishness, quote-unquote, of God that confounds and humbles the most intelligent and shrewd. And when we trust in Jesus, when He shapes us, when we follow Him and not the Pied Pipers of the world, we become more like Him. He remakes us into His beautiful image. So we're all made in the image of God. Original sin, the fall, it's kind of like you know, deforming that image. And then Jesus comes, the, in, the image of the invisible God, so that we can be remade into the image of God and reflect the glory of God, the goodness of God, the love of God to those around us. Okay, so we need cruciform living. That's the point of the series here. Life formed around the cross with the cross at the center, Jesus at the center of our lives, individually and as a church, and life formed by the cross in the sense that the power is actually the the cross is actually the power to change to become more like Jesus it is the power that shapes our perspectives and priorities and values okay so last week we saw how paul aimed at showing the corinthians and us how the cross should shape gospel humility in us okay so we've got nothing to boast in except what saved us, the cross of Jesus. It's only because God has chosen us and called us 
that we have this right standing with God and we belong to him because he redeemed us from our slavery to sin. Nothing to boast in in that except to point away to our Savior. And then, secondly, the cross should shape this gospel unity among us. No divisions or factions. No one's better than anyone else. Okay, so if you look back at 1.10, if you're not in 1 Corinthians yet, um, you'll want to go there now. If you're using, if you don't have a Bible, there's one in the pew in front of you, and you can find our passage on page 952. So chapter 1, verse 10 says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all, that all of you agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind, in the same judgment. <clears throat> okay, so the gospel, the cross is supposed to create this kind of unity, humble unity <clears throat> in the church. The problem that Paul was addressing is the fact that these Corinthians were kind of pitting leaders against leaders and probably bickering on who is more spiritual than who. So Paul says, that's all craziness. Okay, It actually takes Paul the first four chapters of 1 Corinthians to address these issues. Okay, So let's just see how this is, what's going on in chapters 1 to 4 really quickly here. We're going to focus on chapter 2 this morning, but I want you to see how this stretches all the way from chapters 1 to 4. Look at 3.3. 3. So big number three, little number three. He says, for you are still of the flesh, like carnal, um, sinful. While there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behave, behaving only in a human way? Not transformed and changed by the power of the gospel, but still this selfish, natural way of living. Um, so he says, what then is Apollos? What is Paul? They're just servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. Why would you do this like, well, I'm with him and I'm with him and have these divisions going on? That's crazy. Look at chapter 4, verse 1. This is how one should regard us, namely your spiritual leaders, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. And it's required of stewards that they be found faithful. But with me, it's a very small thing that I should be judged by you or any human court. <clears throat> so again, he's having to help them think through. He's seeking to reshape their thoughts about spiritual leaders in their life and to do so by the cross of Christ, by the, the grid of the gospel, because they were not being shaped by that um, very much. So... Keep that in mind as we look through chapter 2 today, because that's what's going on. He's still addressing these issues of leadership and their relationship to leadership and so forth. So let's dive in. First point, there's an outline in your bulletin. So the first point, the message and manner of the cross, chapter 2, verses 1 to 5. And, <clears throat> and I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided, or you could say resolved, another way to translate that, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, 
so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. So, always a good Bible study. Um, first step is to go through Corinth in order to get to Wilmington. You ever heard that? If you live in Wilmington, if you live somewhere else, it would be to get somewhere else, okay? So what in the world is going on here? Well, in the Greco-Roman world at the time, in general, or in Corinth in particular, as a major city in the Greco-Roman Empire, philosophy and oratory were highly prized. Okay? It was actually one of the main forms of entertainment at the time. They didn't have YouTube. They didn't have Netflix. So you waited for the, you know, these preacher guys to come into town, set up a soapbox, and you know, wow the crowd. So oratory, rhetoric, sorry, was an art form. And those who were highly skilled were the famous of the time. They had lots of followers. You know, they would be the ones with 100,000 plus followers on Twitter these days or, or whatever. Okay? And they would have pupils emulating them. So kids would look up to and want to be like such and such a orator. And might even, if he had enough privilege, could get into the school with this speaker, this um, order. So you can imagine how the characteristics of excellence among this guild, prized by this guild, basically set the standards for the day, right? For how to speak publicly, how to preach or proclaim things. So speakers were often judged against this standard, explicitly or implicitly. But here's the problem. This art form valued form over content oftentimes. So the goals were persuasion and impressiveness, crowd-pleasing, really entertainment value. And, and these speakers would use whatever rhetorical tools of the trade necessary to achieve those ends. If you were in order, you did not want to get booed down. You could ruin your career, and your financial well-being is tied to that, right? So you had to be wise. You had to be persuasive. You had to be confident. You had to be impressive. And that's what was esteemed by the populace. So enter the Apostle Paul into that world. Now, some people read this passage and think Paul was kind of like, you know, not a really good speaker and... You know, maybe this is just kind of justifying um, mediocrity in speaking or something like that. That's not what's going on here. Paul was highly trained. He was an excellent speaker. I don't know if you're familiar with the book of Acts, but back in chapter 14 of Acts, do you remember this? They, they rushed to him, you know, they, he and Barnabas, they, they healed a guy and they rushed to him and, and called Paul Hermes and Barnabas Zeus and wanted to bow down and offer sacrifices to them. And they're like, whoa, 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 whoa. They like tear their clothes. No, we're humans just like you. We're just people. Why did they call him Hermes? Okay, anybody doing Greek mythology? What, what was Hermes the god of? Say it. Messenger god. He was a speaking god. Okay? So you're not going to call a pathetic speaker Hermes. Wouldn't make sense. So Paul's a good speaker. So the issue is not like anti-eloquence, 
or a justification of bad speaking. No, the point is that Paul made a decision here. You see the language he uses there. When I came to you, brothers, I didn't proclaim to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. Those are actually technical terms of the time that refer to the kind of rhetorical tools of the trade, rhetorical flourish that was so highly valued. He says, I decided, I resolved to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I made the conscious decision not to try to impress you with learning and rhetorical skills. He intentionally refused to use manipulative means of persuasion. He refused to aim at impressing people or winning people by his wisdom or rhetorical skills. He rejected manipulation. He refused to toy with people's emotions to get them to sign a card, to pray a prayer, walk an aisle. Because here's the thing, if he actually did that and he was successful, quote-unquote successful, then he would have won them by his oratorical power rather than by the power of the gospel. And to do so would be to, like in chapter 1, he says, empty the cross of its power. To do so would be to risk letting their faith rest on him rather than on God. So look at verses 4 and 5. He said, my speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom. Again, in that press, impressive sense of the time that was so highly valued, but in demonstration of the spirit <clears throat> and of power so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. So you know that whole jar of, jars of clay thing in 2 Corinthians 4? Listen to the context. We proclaim, for what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. We have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. I don't want you to be impressed with the clay pot that holds the treasure of the gospel. I don't want you to focus on the clay pot. I'm just a human being. The power is the gospel. So don't look at me, look at Jesus. So we're going to proclaim him, not ourselves. We don't, want you, we don't want to attract you guys to us to gain this big following. We want you to listen to us because we want you to know Jesus. That's the whole point. So no emotional manipulation, no trusting in impressive learning or padded resumes or whatever. Now, again, I, I kind of hinted at it already, but these orders, they, they kind of exuded confidence. They sought to be impressive in every way. Paul rejected that too. Look at verse 3. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. In fact, you can read of this in Acts 18 when the story of him in Corinth is told, at least a part of it, and the Lord actually comes to him in a vision at night and says, don't be afraid, Paul. Keep preaching. I'm with you. I've got many people in this city. So we think the Apostle Paul was like bulletproof or something. No, he was weak and trembling and fearful. And he wasn't afraid to admit it. He wasn't trying to pose or be impressive. He didn't want people to think highly of him. He wanted people to think highly of Jesus. <laughs> so he doesn't have anything to hide. He's willing to admit that he was trembling and weak. That, folks, is the kind of Christian leadership 
worth following. That's the kind of Christian leadership we should aspire to. You can pray that that would be the case for me, and Tyler, and the other elders here. If you ever move on from here to another church, that's the kind of leadership you ought to look for. Paul's manner was in keeping with his message. He says so very clearly later on, 2 Corinthians 12, you're probably familiar with this passage, <clears throat> thorn in the flesh context, take it away, take it away, take it away. And the Lord answers, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Paul says, okay. Well, if that's the case, then I'll boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then I'm content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I'm weak, then I'm strong. Do you see how Paul was totally shaped by the cross of Christ, everything about him. And he wanted it to shape everything about the Corinthians. That is the path to maturity, not some showy impressiveness that merely puffs people up. That's not how Jesus came, right? He came in humility. And it's not what he died to accomplish in our lives, not some kind of prideful inflation of the self, you know, you know, like we look really good on the outside, but we're vacuous on the inside. No, the gospel creates this humility and this substance of soul. We're secure. We know who we are because we're loved with this everlasting love. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. And so we, we have everything we need so we can give our lives lovingly for the sake of others. And that is glorious and full, not vacuous and empty. So <clears throat> let's go back to verse 2 here for a minute, where Paul says he decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Does that mean that Paul was like this one-trick pony, you know, and he kind of just stuck his head in the sand if he brought up any other topic? Like, hey, Paul, what do you think of the refugee crisis? Nope. I only... You know, one thing, that's it. That's all I'm going to speak about. What do you think about abortion? Paul, no, 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 that's not what he's saying here. D.A. Carson, um, one of my professors from seminary, summarizes it well. He says, what Paul means is that all he does and teaches is tied to the cross. He cannot talk long about Christian joy, or Christian ethics, or Christian fellowship, or the Christian doctrine of God, or anything else without finally tying it to the cross. Paul is gospel-centered. He is cross-centered, end of quote. That is maturity. Gospel, cross-shaped thinking and feeling and living. Cross at the center, all of life formed around it. This is the hub of the wheel and the power of the cross shaping every aspect of our lives to look more like Jesus. That's the kind of leader you ought to follow. That's what you ought to pray for me, please. Um, that's the kind of leaders and teachers every leader and teacher in this church ought to be. Hey, do you see the implications of this for ministry to children? 
It's really easy to manipulate children, isn't it? We need to be careful. I could go into the kindergarten class and tell all of them about hell and then say, who wants to go to heaven? Everybody. Has everyone just become a Christian? No. We have to be careful not to manipulate. It's the power of the cross we're trusting in here. doesn't mean that we don't share that with children or call them to trust Jesus, but we need to be careful. How about teenagers? Ministry to teenagers. Whether they're in your home or you're a youth leader or whatever it is. Isn't it really easy to want to like just not be uncool to them? And there's no godliness in being weird, you know, like totally weird. Well, anyway, we won't go into that. Um, sometimes weird is great, but um, we ought to be weirder. But you, you know what I'm saying? Sometimes we can actually put our reliance on the wrong things to try to have influence rather than trusting in the power of the cross. How about the implications for how you share the gospel with your neighbor or your friend or your coworker? Sometimes I think we can easily be tempted to take matters into our own hands and kind of like soften sharp edges or, you know, not say certain things that might, that are true. We don't want to burn a bridge. Again, there's nothing wonderful about burning bridges. It's a matter of faithfulness because we are ambassadors, not editors. Okay, so there's a refusal to manipulate, to flatter, to peddle. Okay, Paul talks like this all over the place to the Corinthians. Listen to how he said this in the next, you know, 2 Corinthians, because again, their values were too much shaped by the world, not the cross. He says, for our boast is this, the testimony of our conscience, that we behaved in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity, not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God and supremely so toward you. And then 4.2, 2 Corinthians 4.2, we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word, but by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. This obviously doesn't mean that Paul never sought to persuade in 2 Corinthians 5, he says, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. This is serious stuff. If we love people, we're going to want to persuade them with the truth of the gospel. We don't want anybody to go to hell. We want people to know Jesus and have their life transformed and have living hope that can't be killed even by death, right? So we would persuade them because we love them, but not, not like back them into a corner emotionally or manipulate them or anything like that. So Paul avoided manipulative persuasion. He knew that it would undermine the truth he proclaimed by the manner in which he proclaimed it. <clears throat> he also knew, and we need to know, we need to believe this, that it's only the power of the gospel, the power of the Spirit that moves and changes. Not our powers or abilities. Um, I think this is a great story by, again, Don Carson tells the story as an example of these dynamics this decision that Paul made. Um, he says, I understood the point of this passage most clearly, I think, when I heard of an Egyptian believer with extraordinary communication skills. Arabic is a language that operates on two levels. There is a sort of street Arabic, 
and a high or literary Arabic. The latter may be found not only in good Arabic literature, but in the hands of the skillful, it may be found in oral address. This particular Egyptian Christian was a journalist, widely read as much for the music of his prose as for the quality of his content. He felt called of God to Christian ministry, abandoned journalism, and soon built up a very large congregation. Many of those who attended his church did so simply because they greatly enjoyed listening to his orations. But this preacher was troubled. He discovered that many people were far more interested in his Arabic than his Savior. After much soul-searching, he switched to the more colloquial Arabic. His reasoning was quite simple. His purpose was to convey the message of the cross, and he had come to the conclusion that his rhetoric was getting in the way. That man surely understood Paul. Now, do you see how that would be a costly decision? You see how people probably left? Was his goal that people would leave? No. But he wouldn't want their confidence to rest in his linguistic skills. He wanted their confidence to rest in the cross. So he resolved to make that change for that purpose. Now, let's kind of personalize this a little bit here. I want our church to grow. Not in weird, you know, numbers and pub. No, like we just want to reach more people. We want more people's lives to be transformed by the power of the gospel. I mean, don't you? <laughs> but what do you do when it's not happening like you desire? We can try to take matters into our own hands. You can kind of like put your finger to the wind and try the latest fad, right? But again, where's our trust? We want to trust in the power of the gospel. We pray because, again, the Spirit of God is ultimately decisive here. We can't change people's hearts, but He can. So, again, we can't ever resort to taking matters into our own hands. We also can't fear that people won't like certain parts of the message, soften the hard parts, blunt the sharp edges <coughs> in order to see more things happen. We dare not do that, right? We have to trust the power of the cross just like that Egyptian journalist. Because at the deepest level, Paul is saying that the cross is the key, the key to the deep wisdom of the universe. <laughs> Sounds like a little bit of a, is that, is that hyperbole? No. The message of the cross is the mystery of God revealed. We'll come back to this in a minute, but this is really the deepest wisdom in the universe. It's summed up in Christ, summed up in the cross. So Paul was never going to turn from that and take some, you know, earthly fads of wisdom to guide his ministry and his life. So the message, the manner of the cross are both cruciform, and that needs to shape how we think and what we do. Secondly, Paul wants to shape their definition and understanding of wisdom. Okay, point number two in verses six to 11, the wisdom of God revealed. Now, even though the cross is viewed as foolishness by many, that doesn't mean that the cross is really foolishness. No, it's actually the wisdom of God. Remember last week in chapter one, look at verse 22. For Jews demand signs 
displays of power, like miracles. And Greeks seek wisdom, okay? This philosophical wisdom that they so esteemed. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, whether they be Jews or Greeks, Christ is, he becomes the power of God and the wisdom of God. But don't you see it? God has to reveal this for us to see it. We have to be called. We have to have our eyes open. We have to come alive to this. We would never come to this on our own. So verse 6, Paul writes to these Corinthians, yet among the mature, and actually, if you keep reading, beginning in chapter 3, he says, and it's not you, Corinthians. Among the mature, we do impart wisdom, although it's not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away, but we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. In other words, again, these deepest mysteries of what this universe is all about ultimately have been revealed through Christ. Listen to how Paul talks in Colossians 1. He says, I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. So who would have thought that the key to the deepest meaning of the universe would be found on a little hill outside of Jerusalem 2,000 years ago? I mean, isn't that, is that crazy to you? Would you stop and think about it? Imagine standing up in a society that really values, you know, academic, acumen, and philosophical nuance and all this, and you say, all the wisdom of the universe, the deepest wisdom of the universe is found in Jesus Christ. Who's Jesus Christ? Well, he was, he's the son of God come down and he was born miraculously of this Virgin Mary and lived like a common peasant. Oh, peasant. God as a peasant? Like homeless? What are you talking about? And then, oh, and then, so he taught, and then he died on a cross. On a cross, like you, you don't realize, you would not talk about crucifixion at, at dinner or in any kind of polite conversation in the first century. Totally disgusting. Totally like, oh, that's so socially just, you're like, what are you? It's like talking about, you know, rats eating a, decaying body or something at the dinner table. Hung on a cross. Criminals, like the lowest of the low, get hung on a cross. What are you talking about, Paul? Well, the rulers of the time didn't get it either. That's why they killed Jesus, right? So look at verse 8. None of the rulers of this age <clears throat> understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Rulers of this age, I mean, sure, political leaders were involved there, religious leaders as well. It's the people that shape the cultural conversation and the values of the age who don't see the cross as wisdom. So in our world, many in the scientific academy don't see it. 
In fact, if you're in the academy and you believe in intelligent design, it could mean the death of your career. Oprah doesn't see it. She loves spirituality of all sorts, but certainly hasn't embraced the centrality of the cross. There's lots of self-help gurus, self-help gurus. The very title betrays that they believe that the power is within you, and they reject the notion that we must be saved from outside, an outside power. I love this quote by Al Mohler. He says, most Americans believe that their major problem is something that has happened to them and that their solution is to be found within. In other words, they believe that this is the wisdom of the age. They believe that they have an alien problem, an outside problem, that is to be resolved with an inner solution. What the gospel says, the cross says, however, is the opposite, right? Is that we have an inner problem that demands an outside alien solution a righteousness that's not our own, that only comes through Jesus. So the experts, the self-help gurus, the spiritual guides, they certainly they may have some wisdom, but it's ultimately, it's ultimately worthless, eternally worthless on that scale if it's not tied to the cross. So the ultimate issues of life and death, of guilt and shame and forgiveness and atonement, of how, do we, how can we be made right with God? How can we be at peace with God? Who is God? What is he like? What does God think of me? Is there any hope for me beyond this life? All the wisdom and answers to those questions are ultimately found in the cross. You want to know what God's like? Oh, he revealed himself in the Old Testament, but he ultimately revealed himself in his son. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. The cross is the ultimate display of the glory of God, perfect, unbending justice. And mercy, like, almost too good to be true. Kiss at the cross. And then that affects everything else. I mean, from issues of forgiveness or fear or anxiety or people-pleasing or codependency or selfishness or whatever, like whatever the issues are of life, the deep wisdom is found in the cross, not on the self-help shelf. And the cross is powerful with those issues to transform us. It provides power to change. So that is why Paul says that he knows nothing but Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And he does so because it was revealed to him. Look at verse 9. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, and this is most likely a combination quote from Isaiah 64.4 and 65.17, um, but as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. All this mystery. Verse 10. These things God has revealed to us. Paul and his associates the disciples, the early church leaders, these things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thought except the Spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. That seems pretty cryptic, doesn't it? But it's actually fairly simple. Here's the point. You can't, like, to just change the, um, give a parallel example, you can't really know my inward thoughts unless I reveal them to you, right? 
Like, I know what I'm thinking, but you don't know what I'm thinking unless I tell you. It's the same with God. If we're going to know, understand the mind of God, we need him to reveal it to us, and he did so. He did so in his son. He did so to his apostles and prophets, and now we have God's word as a record of that revelation. So finally, point three, the spirit of God in the mind of Christ in the last five verses here, 12 to 16. Please remember, this is why I said chapters one to four are all about how the Corinthians viewed leadership. It's the same thing here. The we here refers to Paul and his associates. So remember, Paul's dealing with their view of leadership, who to follow, who to be impressed by. Well, not to follow those who are you know, kind of outwardly impressive. So verse 12. Now we, Paul and the apostles, we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. In other words, he's really coming to a pretty sharp point here. If you don't accept the things I'm saying, then you're not spiritual. And he's not doing a power play here. He just doesn't want them to get led away by this superficial, quote-unquote, wisdom that's really not going to help them. So verse 14, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he's not able to understand them because they're spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. Man, that can be like terribly abused, okay? (laughs) So without going on too much of a tangent here, this is not about some autonomous, me and my Bible individualism, you know? like some guy in rural Kentucky that starts a website and, you know, like challenges, well, you, you can't judge me because I've got the Spirit. Like, there's plenty of that going on, and not just in rural Kentucky. I have family. In, I'm, I'm not bashing any, anybody from Kentucky. Okay. Um, the point is not that we're like, you know, we're all islands, you know, and not under the authority of any church or whatever. <clears throat> that certainly is not the case if you keep reading in the book of 1 Corinthians, okay? Instead, what he's saying is that worldly judgment doesn't have the right to judge spiritual wisdom, okay? Because the natural person doesn't even accept the things of the Spirit of God. That's so. The whole point is not to say that we can't make evaluations inside the church, course not, um, or less that we're some kind of little autonomous interpreters and it, you know, my interpretation is sovereign or something like that. That'd be crazy. You'd end up with craziness and chaos in the church if that was the case. Okay, so verse 16, for who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him, quoting Isaiah 40, but we have the mind of Christ. Okay, so Paul is, again, aiming to reshape their definitions. They actually think that they're the mature ones and Paul's the immature one. And by that very evaluation, what's happening? They're betraying their immaturity. You see it? That's why he has to talk this way to them. So just illustrate it this way. Without a show of hands, um, have you ever had a child who betrayed his or her own ignorance precisely by calling your parental wisdom into question? 
And sometimes it's kind of like you kind of have to finally stop the conversation because you're just not going to convince them right now. And then you have, you know, young parents that come back to their parents and say, oh, mom and dad, like, I was such an idiot. So that's kind of what Paul is doing, seeking to help them see their immaturity and their need for good, faithful, cross-centered leadership and teaching so that the cross shapes their values and evaluation. So you could also think about it this way. Like, this is how you could kind of put yourself in Paul's shoes here. Imagine you have a relative in Texas, and you go visit that relative, and you share the gospel with that relative, and that relative comes to trust Jesus as their Savior. And then you go back home, and you keep some contact, but then, you know, the correspondence, a little less frequent. And then you get back in touch with that relative or you hear from another relative friend that that relative is now attending Joel Osteen's church. And you reconnect with that. Everybody know who Joel Osteen is? Come on, help me out here. Like, all right. So health, wealth, gospel, okay, not a gospel. What, what would you feel the need to do out of love with that relative? You might need to write a letter. You might need to have conversations. And they might view you, like, let's say you go to a small church like ours. <laughs> so you're telling me, I mean, there's like 50,000 people that go to our church. Like, he is so impressive. Do you see what I'm saying? The point is not to bash Joel. Well, I mean, I wouldn't send anybody to his church, not because it's, it's an issue of the cross. And is it loving to excise the cross and the implications of the cross? No, it's not at all. So you can imagine your heart, what you would be wrestling with trying to say and how you'd be trying to wisely shepherd that person. That's what Paul is doing here. And it's all because we're going to be shaped by our values. So if our values are worldly, we are going to be worldly. If our values are tied in with the cross, then we're going to have cruciform living. Okay? And as we see in these latter verses, we are utterly dependent on the Spirit for this to happen. So I want to just close by looking at another passage in um, 2 Corinthians 4 so you can see this utter dependence. Again, we don't resort to tricks or techniques this is how we change, and this is how we help others change. This is how we live the cruciform life. So look at verse, chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways... We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word, but, but by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, if people can't see it, they just reject it, they're blinded to it, it's veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world, Satan, has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the wisdom of the cross, the beauty of Jesus, 
the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. And so what do we do? We just keep proclaiming, not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake because the gospel is the power to change people. So he says, the same God who said, let light shine out of darkness when he created the universe has shown in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So the same God who by his word says, let there be light, and there was light, can say by the power of the gospel, let there be light. The veil comes away, and all of a sudden, what looked like foolishness, the cross becomes wisdom and the deepest meaning of the universe. Yes. So we keep trusting the cross, right? Look back now at the last verse of chapter 3 of 2 Corinthians. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, beholding the glory of Jesus, eyes of faith, enabled by the Spirit, are being transformed, cruciform living, into the same image, the image of Jesus, from one degree of glory to another, step-by-step growth, for this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. So that last point, that the Spirit of God, the mind of Christ, it only comes as God reveals it to us. So we need to dependently, humbly ask the Lord to keep opening our eyes so that we don't get blinded and conformed to this world and our values, but we see clearly, we embrace the wisdom and values of the cross, and we're shaped by the Spirit into that same image. So not by our power, but by the power of the Spirit, by the power of the cross, we become people of the cross, shaped by the cross, to think like Jesus, to love and give and serve like Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, the cross is wonderful and we can so easily lose sight of that wonder and we can be impressed and wowed with earthly things around us that ultimately will not last very long and are not that great. And we suffer for it because we start to get conformed to the image of this world. And I pray that you would open our eyes to see again the wonder and the glory of the cross, to see the glory of God in the face of Jesus, living for us, dying for us, being raised for us, to give us (laughs) grace that just is unending and almost too good to be true. I just pray that you would so incline our hearts, so open our eyes, so soften our hearts that we would lock on the cross of Christ and behold the glory of God in the face of Christ and be transformed, shaped with Jesus at the center by the power of Jesus 
so that we can live like Jesus in this broken, fallen world that whose values is so often just so out of whack. So Lord, for the sake of your great name, we pray these things in Jesus' name.